On this week in Enterprise Tech, Mr. Brian Chee, Mr. Chris Flanken, and I talk about the future of digital trust with Adobe's content credential system. As we're joined by Zach Wasserman, CTO Flea, we're going to discuss the evolving landscape of endpoint management security and how leveraging open source is actually changing things there. Plus, we also have a special treat. We're joined by a listener, Jeff Arcini. He's CISO from Altair, and he's going to take us through just how he's implemented some of our recommendations. You definitely shouldn't miss it. Try it on the set podcasts you love from people you trust this is twit This is Twyatt, This Week in Enterprise Tech, Episode 565, recorded October 13th, 2023. Chebert's MDM Dreams. This episode of This Week in Enterprise Tech is brought to you by Powell Alto Networks. Protect your OT assets, networks, and remote operations with zero trust OT security. To learn more, find the link in the show description or visit powelltonetworks.com. And by Things Canary. Canary tokens are a quick, painless way to help defenders discover they've been breached by having attackers announce themselves. For 10% off and a 60-day money-back guarantee, go to canary.tools slash twit. Enter the code twit in the how to hear about us box. And by Nareva. It's a first Nareva's new Pro Series. The HDL310 for large rooms and the HDL410 for extra large rooms. Gives you uncompromised audio and systems that are incredibly simple set up, manage, and deploy at scale. Learn more at Nareva.com slash twit. Welcome to this week at Enterprise Tech, the show that is dedicated to you. The enterprise professional, the IT pro, and that geek who just wants to know how this world's connected. I'm your host, Louis Moresca, your guide through the big world of the enterprise. But I can't guide you by myself. I got to bring in some professionals and some experts today, our very own Mr. Curtis Franklin, principal analyst at Amdia, and a man who has the pulse of the enterprise. And I can tell you, he's always busy. What's going on with you this week, Kurt? Well, oddly enough, I've been pretty busy. Um, <laughs> have gotten a couple of things published. I'm pleased about that. Talking about uh, talking with a number of companies. Uh, it, it's interesting the way things go in waves. I've uh, been talking a lot about cybersecurity awareness training this week. And one of the interesting things is the way that companies are starting to use generative AI in their training campaigns. Uh, several different ways of doing it, ranging from using AI to generate compelling phishing messages to test um, employees on, all the way up to using generative AI to comb through lots of data on threats in order to tailor training to be the most effective against the threats that have the highest priority in a particular organization. Lots of interesting stuff going on. I've gotten to talk to a bunch of people, and that always makes me happy. Makes me happy as well. Thanks for being here, Kurt. Speaking of interesting stuff, we have Mr. Brian Chi, who's always got some fun stuff to play with. What are you playing with this week, uh, Chibert? Well, I have a bouquet of remote serial devices. Um, And we're actually going to be talking to a viewer um, out of Michigan to talk about how this device, an air console, has made a difference for his operation. And um, it's going to be a lot of fun. In fact, why don't we finish the intro 
and then we'll get to uh, our visitor. Sounds good to me. Well, speaking of fun, we have lots of fun coming up. We'll dive deep into the future of digital trust with Adobe's game-changing content credentials. Question is, is it really game-changing? Well, later we're joined by Zach Wasserman. He's CTO of Fleet, and we're going to discuss the evolving landscape of endpoint management security in the world where the lines between work and home are blurring. Learn how organizations cannot just adapt but thrive by leveraging some open-source technologies and some smart collaboration so stay with us but first we do have a special treat before the blips today some of our past segments have some pretty big deep impact on people of our audience and their organizations today we have a guest that's going to tell us all about it (coughs) well our guest today is jeffrey david maraccini i think i pronounced that right you know lou's going to keep me honest on this right he works for company called Altair. Now, this is not the Altair of way, way back, the original PC. Uh, in fact, Jeffrey told me all, this Altair was founded in 1985, I believe. Anyway, he builds um, supercomputer clusters and works with all kinds of really, really noisy equipment. And Jeff, you've got a set of earmuffs on your desk. Could you explain why you have those earmuffs and <laughs> why an air console has made a difference for you? Well said, Brian. And again, thank you for introducing the air console to me. So high performance computing clusters are usually a few to tens of thousands of computers tied together into a network that work on matrix problems. So a lot of this is engineering and scientific computing. We call them solvers uh, that are used to simulate uh, solutions to make uh, airplanes, cars, whatever better. So the problem with that is, is there's lots of nodes that have GPUs and, uh, and in many cases, uh, very high-speed fans uh, in them. So when you're behind them, they're extremely loud. In fact, in many cases, they're dangerously loud, which is why we wear earmuffs. The problem with high-performance computing is they tend not to be highly available. So if one of the nodes goes out, uh, you have to get it back online very quickly. Is in some cases, uh, if there's an issue with one of them, you can lose the results of your job and possibly lose a lot of money, of course. Plus, you you tick off your engineers and your scientists while you're waiting for that node to be rebuilt or brought online or whatever. So using the Air Console allows us to remote in to the, to the system uh, from a safe distance, get onto the console, figure out what's going on, decide if, hey, if we can fix it really quick, uh, if we can, great. If we can't, we take the node out of the cluster, the cluster continues working, and the engineer or the scientist is very happy. And again, you can do that from a safe distance rather than being behind a group of very hot systems in a data center or in a computing closet, uh, where a lot of times, again, it's not only the noise, but also the heat. Uh, A lot of our engineers actually have to wear very light clothing uh, in these facilities because it's just so hot, exactly. Just plugs into the back of, of a system or a switch, and you can get into it from a safe distance, do your work, and uh, be in a very comfortable environment. So I love them. And again, you don't want to wear these things if you can, because these are these are really annoying and uh, they're not so great for your hearing. Yeah, and w- one of the interesting things is um, I introduced the Bluetooth versions of what I was doing to a bunch of uh, tech sergeants in the U.S. Air Force, and they actually have to do work on avionics, and they have to do the work when the engines are running. And oh so they're actually using it for the same reason. And the University of Hawaii, shall we say, is a very large consumer of supercomputer clusters. 
to the point of we actually have a cray. And they started using these things. They kept borrowing them from me till I finally put my foot down and said, buy your own, darn it. You have a budget. <laughs> anyway, exactly. Jeffrey, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your time and your story. We love it when viewers can take away something really useful and save their hearing. Thank you so much, Twyatt. Uh, you're fantastic. Appreciate it. All right. You take care. Anyway, um, how about we go and see what's happening with Mr. Lou? Go ahead and jump to this week's news blips. Now, in a move that underscores its commitment to blazing fast internet connectivity, Comcast announced the rollout of its DOCSIS Tech 4 technology in the U.S. Cities over actually the old school coax. That's right. DOCSIS 4.0 delivers a symmetrical upload and download speeds ranging from 300 megabit to staggering 2 gigabit per second. The game changer here is the technology's full duplex capability, allowing simultaneous high-speed data transfer without compromising either upstream or downstream speeds. Now, Colorado Springs will be the inaugural city to experience this next-gen internet with neighborhoods in Atlanta, Philadelphia on deck for future deployments. Branded as X-Class Internet, the X again. This portfolio introduces a varied speed tier that can cater to diverse user demands for full live sports streaming to latency sensitive business applications. Now, Comcast CEO emphasizes the competitive edge that the company holds here, stating our connectivity experience powered by the Xfinity 10G network will deliver networks up to 10 gigabits per second over our traditional network to virtually all of our customers, plus even better reliability, lower latency, and optimal in-home Wi-Fi coverage. Now, it's worth noting that the Comcast has been an industry pioneer in DOCSIS technology, which actually originated back in 1997. Now, the company has continually invested in enhancing their network robustness through technologies like distributed access architecture and low latency implementations. For enterprise professionals, the potential applications for these speeds are manifold. Imagine the seamless execution of a cloud-based application or a video conferencing call being clear as day or a large-scale data analytics happening over stream. So whether you're in Colorado Springs or keeping an eye on upcoming deployments, Comcast DOCSIS 4 is shaping up to be a game-changer in the landscape of residential and potentially enterprise internet services. How soon is too soon? According to some cybersecurity professionals, we could find out due to a new proposed rule from the EU that requires vendors to disclose that they know about a vulnerability actively being exploited within one day of learning about it, regardless of the status of a patch. According to an article on Dark Reading, these same professionals are urging that the new rule, set out in Article 11 of the EU's Cyber Resilience Act, be reconsidered. In an open letter signed by 50 prominent cybersecurity professionals across industry and academia, these professionals argue that the 24-hour window is not enough time to fully understand the vulnerability, much less fix it and would open doors to adversaries jumping on the vulnerabilities without allowing organizations enough time to remediate the issues. Now, there is no disagreement about the urgency of patching vulnerabilities. The concerns center on publicizing the vulnerabilities before updates are available, since that leaves organizations at risk of attack and unable to do anything about it. As we've seen in the past, 24 hours may even be too short a time to develop mitigations or workarounds 
much less remediations like patches and updates. Now, some alternatives have been suggested, including one alternative that involves preliminary notification, where vendors can be given a a preliminary notification with a brief grace period before the detailed vulnerability is disclosed to a wider audience. This would be like saying, hey, customers, there's an issue in this module. Yet another way focuses on coordinated vulnerability disclosure, which encourages a system where researchers, vendors, and governments work together to assess, patch, and disclose vulnerabilities responsibly. This is very much modeled on the responsible disclosure model that many, if not all, white hat or ethical hackers follow. Now, those of us outside the EU may think this doesn't affect us, but it does. On the good side, the U.S. has an opportunity to observe, learn, and subsequently develop well-informed cybersecurity policies, as well as proactively prepare for any potential ramifications if Europe moves forward too quickly. On the downside, we can't ignore the ripple effect of the EU's regulatory decisions, as evidenced by the GDPR's influence on CCPA and other U.S. privacy laws. This suggests that European decisions on disclosure and timing could be a forecast of similar regulatory considerations here in the USA. So this story actually comes from a uh, company called Seed Studios. And um, the realistic view of the world is I've made it no, no secret that I'm not really wild about general purpose AI these giant large language models, there's going to be a lot of fighting over them and things like that. I am a big supporter of edge AI because I think that's where it's going to make the biggest impact. And this is actually one of them. Um, in this case, the hardware is an A603 carrier board with an NVIDIA Jetson Orin NX CPU on it. And what they're doing is they're using a drone for fast response inspection for public safety. And this is being deployed in the United States. So public safety is one of the important links in city management, whether it's forest inspection or a rescue scene. It usually plays a key role when the emergency department cannot be there on time. Let's take, for instance, a forest file as an example. It's commonly related to fire prevention, forest resource monitoring, and so forth. However, the traditional manual inspection has obvious disadvantages of low efficiency, and if the discovery is delayed, it is likely to cause irreversible loss and consequences to forest resources. Let let me translate that statement. The manual forest inspection are commonly called fire towers. They're typically in very out-of-the-way places. There's been lots of movies about them. They are big metal towers up in the air with a wood box on the top, and they stick a very lonely forest ranger up in the top. And they stand around on a little walkway with a spectacular view with binoculars. But what happens if they have a cold? What happens if they're tired? What happens if they're having relations? Um, Are they going to miss that first wisp of smoke? So Edge AI is now appearing both with neural processors and now with the NVIDIA GPU processing. 
So the edge AI scenario that I'm hoping for in this case would be a big win for public safety is being able to do smoke detection or fire detection by unblinking, unsleeping, and unwavering edge AI. I was proposing putting that up on one of the taller dormitories at the University of Hawaii because there's a ridge line behind the university that is very susceptible to uh, brush fires, especially because of a homeless population that decides they want to cook hot dogs or something. Um, the interesting thing is it looks like there's going to be two camps. Is it going to be a GPU-based system or is it going to be a neural processor-based system? We had Intel on, not too terribly long, talking about using neural processors so that you don't have to soak up large, large amounts of GPU cycles. So we already have seen, um, we're going to try and get them on again, access communications. They make very high-end webcams. They have third-party smoke detection software. Interestingly enough, a lot of the work done, either neural processor-based or GPU-based, are very, very similar in the facial recognition world. So if you actually see a picture, it'll actually put a square around whatever it thinks is smoke, and it'll give you a percentage on whether or not that it thinks that's really smoke. So it ought to be interesting, and go, go, Edge AI. Indeed. Thank you, Chibert. Well, folks, that does it for the blips. Next up, we have the bites. But before we get to the bites, we do have to thank a really great sponsor of this weekend, Enterprise Tech, and that's Palo Alto Networks. Cybersecurity has become the top focus in organizations, and I'm sure it's at your organization as well. Now, one additional challenge is the fact that there's been a significant growth in the number of OT assets that require internal and external connectivity. OT assets are usually pretty vulnerable to an attack. There's often no security built into the asset as well as poor visibility, unencrypted traffic, and much more. Now, Palo Alto Network's industrial OT security is the solution security teams need to provide effective visibility into OT assets. It provides the most comprehensive zero-trust security across all OT environments and is developed specifically for industrial and manufacturing operations. Industrial OT security delivers comprehensive visibility, ML-powered scalable discovery, and intuitive visualization of OT devices and patterns, OT vulnerabilities, and even risk assessment. It also delivers on zero-trust security, offers segmentation and least-privilege access control, continuous trust verification with 24-7 risk monitoring, and continuous security inspection. Plus, it's simplified operation. That's right. It leverages existing infrastructure. You can deploy it in minutes and share device information natively with tools. Protect your OT assets, networks, and remote operations with Zero Trust OT Security. To learn more, find the link in the show description or visit paloaltonetworks.com. That's paloaltonetworks.com. And we thank Palo Alto Networks for their support of This Week in Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, it's time for the bites. Now, in a significant move for digital trustworthiness, Adobe unveiled a new symbol designed to tag AI-generated or altered content. This is part of the initiative of CP2PA. It seeks to bring clarity to the murkiness surrounding digital content, particularly given the rise of deepfakes and misinformation. We all know deepfakes. We've seen a lot of them now. Adobe calls it content credentials. It's displayed as a lower 
lowercase CR symbol. You can see it there. It's essentially a metadata signature signature that gives you a snapshot of the content's origin and the tools used in its creation. The key players collaborating on this are not actually small. That's right. Adobe worked alongside organizations such as Microsoft, BBC, Nikon, and TruePic. The symbol will indicate not just if its AI was actually involved in its creation, but also which digital tools were used, allowing users to click on the CR symbol to view more details. The big question is, does it really assure authenticity? Well, not entirely, actually. The CR symbol merely signifies the presence of metadata. It doesn't vouch for the content's genuineness or actually anything at all, really. In other words, DeepFake could also carry its own credentialing here as well. Yet Adobe believes this is a metadata tagging system could become as ubiquitous as the copyright symbol in the digital landscape. But here's the Achilles heel. The system is voluntary. (laughs) Metadata could be stripped or lost in the chain tools used, and it doesn't support, that actually doesn't support content credentials. While the metadata is encrypted, it's not entirely foolproof against tampering. Beyond Adobe, Google and Digimark also are stepping up with their initiatives like Synth AI and Synth ID and Digital Watermarks, respectively, to track AI-generated content. The tech industry's overreaching aim here is to build a framework that at least provides some level of traceability and transparency, albeit not infatality. Now, Mark Wilson from Fast Company puts it actually pretty simply. The CR system in from its current form is good to have, but not must have for verifying content authenticity. It's not a good, it's not a great way to really ensure transparency, but it falls short of offering a foolproof system for combating digital deception. In conclusion, the CR symbol is a step forward, but let's not make it make a mistake here as a comprehensive solution. I do want to bring my co-host back in because there's been a lot of these campaigns by organizations. Some kind, sometimes, you know, they have a secondary reason for doing this. Um, Curtis, I want to throw this to you first. How effective will you think this this voluntary contact credential system will be combating this type of thing? I think this will probably be at least as effective as the little box that says, I am not a robot, uh, that people uh, are asked to check on uh, to, to, prove, to prove conclusively that they are absolutely human and couldn't possibly be any sort of programmatic or robotic system checking those boxes. Um, It's a nice thought. It's a lovely thought. And in a world that didn't really need an attestation of human creation, it would be beautiful. But... There are a bunch of problems, um, not least of which is that AI can create meta tags. Um, Shoot, I'm not even really good at it, and I can create AI programs to do meta tags. Um, It does speak to a very real issue, which is that... AI-generated audio and video are becoming so good. They have, to to use a a phrase my son loves to use, leapt across the uncanny valley uh, so that they're no longer just bad enough to make us feel queasy about watching them. They're, They're now quite realistic. 
And so for things like news, political news, for things like company news, uh, whether good or bad, um, for fraud, and for simple trustworthiness uh, of the information that flows to us, there are some significant implications. And I'm not sure uh, that something as simple as a voluntary watermark is going to solve them. I, I wish it, I had confidence that it would, but I just don't. Right. <laughs> right. what do you think? How, how effective do you think this will be? Have, have we seen this type of thing before? I think in the form that the article talks about, it's going to be a flop. However, Adobe has had a system uh, in their PDF. It's basically if you make any kind of modifications, even if you erase a space and then put a space back, it will say the document has been modified. The content credentials has that potential to go just that little bit further. Now, I do warn, I do kind of throw up a, a skyrocket here that this might also be Adobe trying to go and sneak their way onto every computer in existence and get a license fee out of them. You know, that's possible. However, I'm going to draw a similarity to a Japanese um, system called a Honko. And, Ant, if we could bring up that web page, you can actually take a family crest or a symbol, symbol, as long as it is a unique symbol, and register it in Japan. It is good enough that it is acceptable as a, in lieu of a signature. Because remember, a signature is a, a traditional signature is a very Western concept. Whereas a registered personal seal has a government registration behind it. So the point I'm getting at is the concept of a honko could be very much like the content creation symbol. If you, according to the article, if you hover above the logo, it's supposed to pop down a list of the contents or the ingredients. And in theory, if any of the ingredients are changed, it's supposed to display a big red X over the logo. Um, will that be enough? I don't know. But if we start registering it, kind of like NFTs, um, maybe this might be the digital signature that I've been ranting about for, I don't know, the last decade maybe. You know, I personally think, you know, scribbling, you know, on a digitizer pad and having the system record my actions as being a signature, I think is weak. But if I had an NFT that I could register, say, with the U.S. Post Office, which might also revive the post office as being significant again, might be a way to go and have real digital signatures that is so lacking in today's e-commerce world. Right. Well, if it's anything like their PDF security, I think you should probably run and hide because if you don't 
believe me, you can check out the CV21608, the latest oh, remote God, code yeah. execution bug there. Um, that's a pretty interesting one, so check that out. Um, I, Curtis, I want to throw this last last word to you because I think you mentioned this before. I mean, obviously, there's lots of things going on with deepfakes. People can't trust what they're seeing now. Um, they're getting better and better. Um, obviously, Adobe's trying something. Google's trying something. They're attempting to build an ecosystem where people can trust things. So if you voluntarily jump in there and they have some kind of repository of images or even photographers or whatnot start jumping into this, could you just trust their content better? Are we just basically, basically saying, hey, we can contact, trust their stuff better? And, and if you don't get it from them, it could just be fake? Is that what they're trying to do? I think that's what they would like to see happen. Um. Even if we give them the benefit of the doubt and say that this is purely done for the better betterment of mankind, um, they would love it if the betterment of mankind included everyone using something that was associated with them. Um, the problem, here's the deal. For it to be truly useful, it would have to have a certain critical mass used by enough organizations and enough individuals so that people who don't live in media or technology could see it and know that it meant something useful. The problem is that with multiple systems, it's going to be difficult for any one to gain a critical mass. Now, the the free market theory says that ultimately one will prove its worth and be adopted by the market and shown to be the best and the one true way to show human creation. Um, the pessimist says that we'll be lucky to have that happen before Skynet makes it all irrelevant. I gotta, I gotta jump in here. This is the voice of Aunt Pruitt for those listening and trying to figure out where's that voice coming from. Um, yeah, I did a segment on this from Tech News Weekly here at Twit the other day uh, because yes, I am a big Adobe fanboy. Yes, I am an authorized Adobe affiliate, but yes, I will call BS on them if I see BS. And um, with that out of the way. I thought about this a little bit more, and I agree with you all saying that there needs to be some type of critical mass to be involved with this for it to, to work. But to their advantage here, this coalition is also working with the open source community. So they can have their feet held to the fire when it comes to dealing with content, the content authenticity initiative. And I showed off an, an, an illustration, if you will, here. This is a shot that I took, camera raw file. Um, just to test it out, just to further prove that this has to be adopted by everybody. This is on my website, you know, a Squarespace website. And I updated the image, you know, using AI. I basically, I removed that person. I didn't go in and just push the pixels around. I specifically used the AI generation tools inside of Photoshop. And as I hovered a mouse over this, you see there's no bash. Nothing has happened. And that's because more than likely Squarespace or whoever, whoever else they have running on the back end hasn't necessarily adopted this, this particular um, process just yet. Right. So next you have to worry about social media. 
this misinformation and disinformation stuff that we're dealing with from images and videos and audio is usually on social media, not just particularly on a website. Uh, is Meta going to adopt this? Is X going to adopt this? Uh, what about everybody that's on the Fediverse? Well, the people running those servers adopt this. So, uh, again, it's a bit of a, a crapshoot here and we got a long way to go, but at least it's open source and people can be held accountable. All right, I'm shutting up now. We got bills to wait, pay, Mr. Wait, Lou. Hold, hold on a second, Ant, because <laughs> if I can, I'd like to ask Ant a question. Since since sure. he jumped in, um, let, let's go back to the, the images you present. Because sure. clearly, from a photojournalist viewpoint, uh-huh. making the change that you showed is a violation of journalistic ethics. That is correct. And that's something that this CAI is supposed to help is have a paper trail of showing, all right, this was snapped by Ant Pruitt on this particular camera. Ant Pruitt also exported this and gave it to the New York Times or what have you. And then if the New York Times decides to go in and want to crop it, it is supposed to still show that paper trail of New York Times went in and did a crop on this or what have you. And all of that is supposedly encrypted. And if it's if supposedly if it's moved, there's supposed to be a way that it could be flagged to show that, hey, this thing has been manipulated and we cannot verify the um, the authenticity of it anymore. But we did have it at one point and some point it got stripped out. Here's your flag. But again, everybody has to adopt this system. And I hope more people do because election season is coming up here in the U.S. And boy, I got to tell you, y'all know how that can go. I do. And and let me say that on, on that last one, if you are player four's mom and you want that shot as as processed, more power to you. You know, right. give, give it to mom. Right. If you if you claim to be purveying news, the rules are different. Sure are. And, and as you say, that's where the real issue is, and that's where Brian likes soapboxes. Here's one of mine. That's where a breakdown in journalistic ethics globally, largely, although not entirely, tied to the use of social media networks as news dissemination channels, Um has created a problem that that's going to echo for a long time. We've already started to see it in the in what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now. Yep. Um there there are tons of doctored fake terrible images floating around that cannot be verified. Many of them because they're just not real. But they do inflame passions they do incite people to heightened rhetoric and action on one side or the other and so these are things with very real ramifications this is not just um, a philosophical discussion among photographers this is real world sure is and i gotta tell you if, if, if you were standing in a pulpit somewhere i'd be yelling amen right now to you sir well said <laughs> Well said, indeed. Thank you, guys. Great conversation. I definitely think I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping for something. I'm hoping for something to move things forward. Well, I say that does it for that bite. Next up, we have our guests. But before we get to our guests, we have to thank another great sponsor of this weekend enterprise tech, and that's 
think it's Canary. Simply put, Canary tokens, tiny tripwires you can drop in a hundred places, and they follow the Things Canary philosophy. Trivial to deploy with ridiculously high quality of signal. There's a little room for doubt. If someone nefariously browsed a file share or opened a sensitive-looking document on your Canary, you immediately will be alerted to the problem. Things Canary's founding team has a background in offense, but has prioritized defensive thinking in developing their devices. Canary's team is uber-conscious of customers' trust in their product and takes extensive measures to ensure their devices do not pose any additional risk. Canaries are designed to be secure by using memory-safe languages and sandboxing. The architecture ensures that no critical network secrets are stored on the canaries. To maintain security, canaries are not allowed to be dual-homed or span VLANs, as it could give attackers access to jump across networks. Thinks Canary has put immense effort into ensuring they don't introduce new vulnerabilities to customers' networks. Her bird can let off just one warning before it's owned. It's lived up to its namesake and it's earned its keep. Customers have the option to break the backend authentication link to prevent Thinks staff from accessing their console. Additionally, a third-party assessment commends the secure device of the platform and software stack implemented by Thinks. Hardware, VM, and cloud-based canaries are deployed and loved on all seven continents. Go to canary.tools/love and see for yourself all the genuine customer love for Thinks Canary. Visit canary.tools/twit and for just $7500 per year, you'll get five canaries, your own hosted console, upgrades, support, and maintenance. And if you use code TWIT and how to hear about us box, you'll get 10% off the price for life. Thinks Canary adds incomparable value, but if you're unhappy, you can always return your canaries with their two-month money-back guarantee for a full refund. However, during all the years TWIT has partnered with Thinks Canary, the refund guarantee has never been claimed. Visit canary.tools slash TWIT and enter the code TWIT in the how to hear about us box. And we thanks Thinks Canary for their support of this week. Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, it's my favorite part of the show. We actually get to bring in a guest to drop some knowledge on the Twilight Riot. Today, we have Zach Wasserman. He's CTO of Fleet and co-creator of OS Quarry. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you so much for having me, Lou. Absolutely. Now, we have a huge spectrum of experiences in our audience, and some of them like to hear people's origin stories. Can you take us through maybe an abridged version of your journey through tech and what brought you to Fleet? Sure, absolutely. So I think for me, it started with just a childhood love for computers. Of course, I grew up around the dot com boom in the Bay Area and just saw things exploding and the potential of computers. My my professional background really got started through some university research into cybersecurity, where we published some interesting work around hacking the radios that the federal agencies were moving to. And I got to work with some really cool uh, grad students, amazing professor Matt Blaze on that research. And then later I moved into cybersecurity in industry through being on the security team at Facebook. And it was there that I helped create OS Query, and we eventually open sourced that. And that kind of gets to the whole rest of the story that I'm sure we'll dig into today. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, let's just drive right in there. I think, obviously, we hear a lot about the fact that endpoints are frequently cited as the weakest link in most organization security, especially with remote work. People are extending their networks to everyone's homes. What are you seeing that some of the foundational practices out there that you're that you are recommending or are you seeing people recommend around adding more security but not adding complexity? 
Yeah, for sure. And of course, I think it starts with the idea that you can't secure what you don't know. And in particular, as we move to, or as we have moved over the last three years to more remote and hybrid workforce, we have way more unknowns introduced into our environments. So we don't control the networks anymore. We don't control all the devices because people are doing BYOD, whether we like it or not. And we need to find ways to get visibility into what's going on on the devices. So that's kind of the, the thesis of Fleet. And we use open source technology to help gather insights on what's happening in devices across Mac, Windows, and Linux, which are, of course, the major desktop computing platforms. You know, some interesting things that we've we've talked about, obviously, you said there's not a lot of control out there, but there's an, an ask out there to see more of a convergence between security teams, developer teams, operation teams, and making sure that IT settings are kind of fluid throughout. What are you seeing from frameworks or technologies that can really enable that type of thing? Well, something that I'm really excited about is taking some of the DevOps practices, things like GitOps and configuration as code, and bring those into the IT and the security realm. And so we have started to hear about things like DevSecOps, bringing security into the development workflow, but also I think bringing those DevOps practices in helps us establish more transparency within our organizations and more repeatability and auditability around these things. So those are big things that that we're working for. Additionally, bringing those things into IT as well so that we can understand on these devices, which are, of course, a really sensitive part of our infrastructure, what changes are being made, who's making those changes, and why. So that it, those concepts are something that we're really excited to see growing, and we're excited to bring through the tools that we are building, again, both open source and commercial. I've used a lot of uh, bring your own device systems and services, MDM services out there. Obviously, a lot of them apply policies to the device. And we're seeing this increasing number of organizations allowing bring your own device, which makes their fleet huge and their diversity of their devices huge. The one thing that I see that organizations struggle with is their users don't necessarily trust the service that they're putting on the device because they don't know what they can see or what they can watch or or that kind of thing. And then the kind of the flip side, the organization can't necessarily trust the user because they don't know what they're doing in the background. So what what do you talk to what do you say to organizations that have this or people that have this problem? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Our kind of core thesis is that transparency helps to build trust. I mean, I get it that if you're a security team at an organization, you need to know what's happening on those devices in order to keep the organization secure. And I also get it if you're a user, like you don't want to think that the IT or the security team is poking into your personal information. So there are balances to be had here. I think that the thing that I've learned through, you know, working with IT and security teams over all these years is like, these folks don't want to dig into anyone's personal information. They want to keep the devices secure. They're being really responsible about how they use the tools. And if we provide them the opportunity to be more transparent with the users about what the tools are doing, then that really helps to build the trust and build a culture that I think is more resilient. 
I love the transparency side of things. Now, I want to jump into the concept of just open source versus proprietary, because there's a lot of transparency when it comes to open source and obviously a lot of flexibility. But there is a trade-off. Sometimes it requires a little bit of expertise when it comes to in-house. So if you have to make a change or if you have to you know, make it specific for your organization, you have to have some expertise there to be able to do it. What are you seeing? How are you seeing organizations kind of balance those benefits there when it comes to your software? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously I'm biased here, but I think that we strike a really, a really cool balance where we've taken this open source core technology. So OS query, which is an agent that runs on the individual devices. It can extract a ton of useful information and it's integrated not only in fleets products, but also into products from major corporations like VMware and Microsoft. Um, so we're, we're certainly not the only ones using it. But we think that we've struck a really good balance between giving you the insights out of the box and giving you the control to look for what you need specific to your organization. So again, we provide the opportunity to do these things like configuration as code and so that you can evolve processes around deciding what you want to monitor on devices, what kinds of policies you want to enforce, what kind of configurations you want to push. And I think that by giving folks both the out-of-the-box functionality and the click ops, if you will, the GUI to work with that's friendly and well-designed, but also the deep integrations, you end up being able to get the best of both worlds and to move towards a more modern practice where we have a, a smaller set of more skilled individuals doing really high impact and high leverage work in the organization. So one more, and then I want to bring my co-host back in. But you talked about evolving, obviously evolving policies and settings and configurations. And we always talk a lot about on this show future-proofing security, but it almost is a misnomer. It's almost impossible to get there. And organizations are looking for ways to to you know make sure that they have really good endpoint security strategies that are effective now and that they can adapt to later. Are you seeing that possible with MDM solutions? Is there other things organizations should be basically be thinking about here too? Yeah, and something that we've talked about a lot is that MDM is really so much more than just the base MDM protocol that's on the devices. So Apple now for around 10 years has had the MDM protocol and Microsoft is now building MDM into their operating systems. And MDM is really useful and, and it's a critical component, I think, of securing workstations, but it's not enough. There's so much more that you need to do beyond what MDM provides, things like software management, things like script execution. These are not usually things that go directly into the MDM and it, particularly things like monitoring, again, from a security perspective, from a compliance perspective, and from just understanding from a productivity perspective, the performance of the devices. So we really try to integrate it all into one system so that you don't have to rely on piecemealing together all of these different components or finding that your, that your deeply, deeply integrated system is missing something critical and you're not going to be able to build the integrations. Again, we think about balance and we think about trying to make it so that we'll integrate everything for you, but we'll also leave integration points open so that you can tie all the rest of the tools in that you need. 
fantastic. Well, I do want to bring my co-host back in, but before we do, we do have to thank another great sponsor of this week in enterprise tech, and that's Nareva. Nareva Mini Room Audio Technology has a history of wowing IT pros. Duquesne University has 100 Nareva devices installed, and one of their senior technologists recently said, I can't say enough about how impressed I am. Audio has been my life's work for 30 years, and I'm amazed at what Nareva mic and speaker bar will do. Nareva has made another leap forward with their introduction of their Pro Series, featuring the HDL310 for larger rooms and the HDL410 for extra large rooms. For the first time, you can get Pro Audio performance and plug-and-play simplicity in the same system. Before the Nareva Pro Series, multi-component Pro AV systems were the only way to get Pro Audio performance in a large and extra large room. Nareva continues to amaze IT pros with the Pro Series. In fact, their online demo highlights the Nareva Audio Expert being heard clearly from under a table or behind a pillar or any other obstruction. It's pickup performance that many conventional systems can't even match. Let's talk coverage. The HDL 410 covers rooms up to 35 feet by 55 feet with just two mics and speaker bars. Imagine equipping the extra-large meeting room or lecture hall with just two discrete and wall-mounted devices. You can even use them individually in a divisible room as well. The HDL 410 has features a unified coverage map, in fact, which processes mic pickup from two devices simultaneously to create a giant single mic array. Now, the HDL 310 covers spaces up to 30 feet by 30 feet with just one mic and speaker bar. Nareva is all about simplicity as well. The HDL 310 takes about 30 minutes to install, and the 410 takes about 60 minutes, not much at all, which with continuous auto calibration, Nareva Audio automatically and continuously adapts to the changes in the room's acoustic profile. And with Nareva Console, the cloud-based device management platform, it takes the pain out of the tasks like firmware updates, checking device status, changing settings, and a lot more. Bottom line, with the Pro Series, Nareva makes it simple to quickly and cost-effectively equip your, more of your spaces for remote collaboration. Learn more at Nareva.com slash twit. That's N-U-R-E-V-A dot com slash T-W-I-T. And we thank Nareva for their support of this week at Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, we've been talking with Zach Wasserman, CTO of Fleet. We're talking about endpoint security, MDM, lots of great stuff. But I do want to bring my co-host back in because they have some great stuff to talk about as well. Kurt? Oh, I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that I am am really interested in <clears throat> is MDM for Android devices versus iOS. Because one of the things we always hear is that anything that has Android in it is much more difficult to manage simply because of how many versions there are. First of all, is that something that you've experienced? And if it is, how do you deal with it? Can it be dealt with? Yeah, you know, Kurt, we are not yet at Fleet doing mobile devices. That's probably coming in the next year for us. So as we move to multi-platform MDM, our focus is starting with uh, with macOS, which we've already released, and Windows that's coming in the next month or so. So mobile is an upcoming challenge. But I can tell you from the experience of going from macOS to Windows, certainly we are, you know, you do see much more heterogeneous configurations and, and device configurations. And so we are 
we are aware of the unique challenges that are coming with that. Well, I know that you talk about you do Linux, and there's more than one distribution of Linux out there. Uh, is it a similar issue? Do you, do you think that the experience of dealing with the different Linux distros is perhaps uh, giving you a hint of what is to come? Yes, and in some ways it's even worse with Linux because we also deal with both Linux workstations and Linux servers. So we're seeing very, very different computing environments. We're seeing extremely different APIs in some cases, different package managers, different surface areas with things like SE Linux only being available on some systems. So we definitely, on the on the visibility and monitoring side, we have for quite a while been dealing with this. And it's not just on that front, it's also not just Linux, it's also how different is Mac OS from Linux and, and Windows from the two of those. So there are so many ways in which a system like ours tries to abstract away the complexity of all those things. And we do the best that we can so that our IT admins and our security teams can think about the higher level concepts as much as possible. But there are always places where you have to start to make the user aware and the user has to have the knowledge of the unique aspects of certain systems. Well, you know, I, I think it, it is superb. I, I agree with you that the endpoint is critical, maybe the most critical area of the infrastructure. But I also know that endpoint is one of those words that has a bunch of different meanings depending on who you're talking to. I mean, I... I stumbled into mobile devices on, on my first question, and you you answered that very gracefully. I'll, I'll say, um, desktops in all of their guises are obviously endpoints. But do you have people who are asking you about OT kind of endpoints? Uh, because there sure are. A bunch of those out there, and my heavens, um, does that world make the craziest day on the desktop look like a walk in the park? Yes, certainly. And we are starting to see some really interesting organizations such as you know, modern EV manufacturers who are starting to look at using our technology on some of their OT devices. And the thing that... that that we benefit from is some of those OT devices are running Linux. Some of them are running windows. And so the agent that we have there does begin to work on those things, but certainly there are unique challenges across those. And additionally, you know, you talked about the, the wide range of things that can be defined as endpoints. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning is I think we need to start thinking about containers as endpoints, Kubernetes clusters and other sorts of containerized computing environments. The individual nodes are endpoints. So, so endpoints are, are being layered within other endpoints. There's a hugely heterogeneous level of, of configurations. And I think that this increasing surface area is a challenge for IT and security and operations teams to continue to grapple with. Well, you'll be happy to know that I'm not going to ask you about containers. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to dive into that particular pool 
But but I am going to step back just a little bit because it seems like every time we have a major vulnerability that crops up that affects 10 million endpoints, it's going to go back and someone's going to say, aha, it's in an open source library. Aha, it's in an open source module. It's it, it's all the fault of open source. Um, is that a battle that you're still fighting? And, you know, have have you had enough practice at taking those punches to have developed a, a ready response when when someone tries to make that argument? Yeah, really interesting question. And I think the the widespread impact of these kind of vulnerabilities in open source are really a testament to the value of open source. Every organization is integrating open source into their technology stacks. And it's that value that causes, I think, the, the widespread impact. But from a commercial perspective, we don't see much resistance there. And particularly from the most progressive, the most technology focused, the fastest growing organizations, you know, just look at some of our biggest organizations in the technology field today, the face, you know, the FANG organizations, they have pushed open source. They have built themselves on open source. And I think they've proven the value of building on and investing in open source. And I think that that sort of demonstration of value and commitment to those things is trickling down into the organizations that want to be able to move as fast as those top organizations that want to reinvigorate their growth and that kind of thing. Well, I'm going to ask a crystal ball question only because I've actually wished for MDM in one form or another for almost my entire career, especially when I was doing classified projects. When a workstation cost me anywhere between four and 20 man hours to configure for a classified environment, MDM would pay for itself in a heartbeat. So here's the actual question. Is the need, is the want, is the desire for MDM forcing some standards finally? Or am I just wishing? Well, certainly MDM itself itself is a standard on both Mac OS and Windows. And so those are things that, that Microsoft and Apple are pushing. I think the, the example of the classified environments is an interesting one because in particular on Mac OS and I believe in, in Windows, it's not possible to actually use the MDM technologies without interacting with the servers of, of Apple and Microsoft. And so while we can have our own MDM server, we still have to have involvement in those servers, particularly because the way that devices end up checking in for new policies and actions to take is usually triggered by push notifications through those servers. And so standards we are getting, but these are not open and these are not things that can be developed entirely independently. With Fleet, we offer folks the opportunity to self-host their own MDM server. So really the sort of most sensitive portions of this can be implemented 
through open source technology, which is fully auditable and, and increases the transparency there. But there's not a way to eliminate the vendor reliance entirely. And I think that that's kind of an, an interesting and unique challenge for some of the most highly sensitive environments. Okay, well, let's, I'm going to ask the crystal ball question going just a little further. And this time I'm just going to ask you if you could th- wave a magic wand for this industry, what would you change? What would you like the manufacturers, the, the authors of these systems to realize that they're holding up an entire industry? What kinds of things would you like to see? Yeah, I mean, what I'd really like to see is the manufacturers committing to allowing both enterprises and the vendors that serve them to do the full life cycle of that kind of service without relying on this, again, the servers of the manufacturers. So give us the standards, give us the protocols, make them open and make them completely able to be actioned independently so that we can fully understand, own, and trust those processes uh, in order to both kind of move quicker to serve our customers as vendors and for our customers to be able to get the full transparency and control that they want to see over their devices. Yeah, so kind of like I register with you, you give me a digitally signed um, package, an envelope, saying this is for Workstation X. And that's my life cycle authority. And now I can take that. I can get it um, validated by my system security officers and so forth and still want and do my things offline. Does that sound about the direction of your wish? Yeah, it, it does. And it's worth noting that that's not actually far off from where we are today. There is, you know, in particular with Mac OS, there is a system where, you know, we as an MDM vendor get to sign certificate requests for our customers. And then Apple will sign certificates for those customers. And those will then be used by our software somewhat out of band from Apple to do the management. So we're, we're in the process of getting there. And I think there's just like a few key steps missing to sort of enable full autonomy here. Yeah. You'll be glad to know that was actually the topic of a, slightly over one hour rant by myself um, with various three-letter agencies at a very, very, very large office building in Washington, D.C. when I still wore a uniform. Wow, very anyway, cool. Um, someday. Uh, I, I keep wishing for an MDM for the classified world just because I hired so many people just to configure workstations and I could save the U.S. government so much money. Anyway, you know what? I think we're just about out of time. What do you think, Lou? Yeah, with with time with with any great show, time flies. I definitely believe that with this show. Zach, Zach thank you so much for being here. We're, since we're running low on time, can you maybe tell the folks at home where they can learn more about Fleet? Sure, check us out at fleetdm.com. So that's fleetdm.com. And you can learn all about both Fleet and OS Query, the open source project of the Linux Foundation that we're built on top of. Thanks again. Well, folks, you have done it again. You sat through another hour of the best staying enterprise and IT podcast in the universe. So definitely tune your podcast to Twyatt. I want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to my amazing co-host, 
So our very own Mr. Brian Chi. Cheever, thanks so much for being here. Where could people find you and all your work and get, maybe get in touch with you? Well, I'm shining my crystal ball, you know, which the chat room seems to always love my crystal ball questions. You know, go figure, right? Anyway, um, I'm doing all kinds of stuff, especially getting ready for Maker Fair Orlando. And uh, we're doing all kinds of really neat stuff, including steamroller printing. Can you imagine that? You know, big, giant woodblock print, ink it up, put a sheet of paper down, and a steamroller goes squish. A lot of fun. We've got a giant claw machine. That Well, not a giant claw machine, but we've got a claw machine. We've got all kinds of really fun stuff, including Wackonite. We've got people in armor that you can go and whack on with swords and so forth. Lots and lots of fun. I'm going to be posting pictures. I'm going to be probably live streaming some video. And a lot of it's going to be on Twitter, which is now called X. Still don't understand that name. Sorry. Um, I'm A-D-V-N-E-T-L-A-B, Advanced Net Lab. That's kind of a leftover from when I was teaching at the University of Hawaii. You're also welcome to throw show ideas, make comments, and so forth. Jeff Maraccini actually sent one to me. And that is Chebert, spelled C-H-E-E-B-E-R-T at twit.tv. You can also send email to twiet at twit.tv, and it'll hit all the hosts. We'd love to hear from you, and who knows? If something we talk about makes a difference in your job, let's have you on and let you brag about it. Jeff did. Indeed he did. Thank you, Chebert. Thank you, Jeff. Well, we also have to thank our... Very old Mr. Curtis Franklin as well. Curtis, what's going on for you in the coming week? Where can people find you? Well, I'm going to be busy doing research on a number of companies, uh, looking at resilience uh, quite a bit these days. Uh, Also starting to look hard at cyber ranges uh, and professional security training. So these are all uh, things that I'm going to be working on in the coming months to sort of starting to get ready for my 2024 research agenda. Uh, Also going to be wrapping up 2023 and uh, putting together my trends to watch in 24. To find me, of course, you can see things that I've written over at Dark Reading at the Dark Reading slash Omnia tab. Uh, also, I'm doing a little bit more at uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Curtis Franklin at LinkedIn. Uh, you're all welcome to follow me. And uh, enjoying Mastodon evermore. KG4GWA at mastodon.sdf.org. Uh, would love it if you heard, heard me tell you where the addresses are. Give me a ping. Give me a follow. Always love hearing from the Twyat Riot between shows. Thank you, Kurt. Well, we also have to thank you as well. That's right. You are the person who drops in each every week to get your enterprise goodness. We want to make it easy for you to watch and listen, catch up on your enterprise and IT news. So go to our show page right now, twit.tv slash Twyat. There it is. We'll find all the amazing back episodes, of course, and co-host information, guest information as well. But more importantly, there next to those videos, there you go. You get those helpful subscribe and download links. Support the show by getting your audio version and your video version of your choice. Because we're, you know, we're on all of your podcast applications or any one of your devices. So definitely subscribe, download, and support the show. Now you may have also heard there's also Club Twit as well. That's right. It's a members-only ad-free podcast service with a bonus Twit Plus feed that you can't get anywhere else. 
It's only $7 a month. And there's a lot of great things that come with Club Twit. One of them is the exclusive access to the members only Discord server. That's right. Also, you can chat with hosts and producers and you have lots of separate discussion channels in there, lots of special events. So a lot of great things there. Definitely join Club Twit at twit.tv slash club twit. And they, you know what? They also offer corporate group plans as well. It's a great way to give your entire team access to our ad-free tech podcast. Plans start with five members, discounted rate of $6 each per month. You can add as many seats as you like there. And it's a really great way for your IT departments, your developers, your sales teams, your tech teams, whoever, to just join and really get access to all of our free and all of our tech podcasts out there without ads. And then just like regular memberships, you get that Twit Discord server and that Twit Plus bonus feed as well. And you know what? There's also family plans. That's right. $12 a month. You get two seats there and you get additional seats for $6. So you can take advantage of Club Twit in a lot of different ways. So definitely check it out. Twit.tv slash Club Twit. Now, after you subscribe, share the, share the show with your friends, your family members, your coworkers, because we talk about a lot of tech topics on the show, a lot of fun stuff. We guarantee that you will find it fun and interesting as well. So definitely share it with them. And you know what? If we do the show live, that's right. Friday right now, 1.30 p.m. Pacific time. We're doing it live. You can see all the behind the scenes, all the banter before and after the show. Come see how the pizza's made. Go to live.twit.tv. Watch the show live. And you know what? If you're going to watch the little show live, you might as well jump into our infamous IRC channel as well, Twit Live. And you can get to that by just going to your web browser, irc.twit.tv. It'll jump you right in there. It can join all the fun and all the characters that are in there each and every week. Thank you guys for being there. It really makes the show. Definitely hit me up. I want you to hit me up on whether it's Twitter, X.com, whatever we call on it nowadays. It's LouMM over there. Of course, I'm also on threads, LouMPM on threads. I'm on Mastodon as well, LouMM at twit.social. And of course, always on LinkedIn. I'm always there. That's a great way to get in touch with me as well. You want to just message me over there or connect with me over there. I really love that. Um, if you want to know what I do during my normal work week, please check out developers.microsoft.com slash office. There we post all the latest and greatest ways for you to customize your office experience to make it more productive for you. And I'll get you, you should definitely check out, if you have M365, check out Excel, open Excel right now, go to that automate tab. That's where my team loves to live. We're, we're creating new platforms to let you automate things. It generates scripts that you can actually run over in Power Automate, you create huge workflows and orchestrations. You don't even you don't even have to open Excel anymore. So definitely check that out and make it more productive for you. I want to make sure I thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to Leo and to Lisa. They continue to support Twyat each and every week and really can do the show without them. So thank you for all their support. Of course, thank you to all the engineers and staff at Twit. Of course, thank you to Mr. Brian Chi one more time as well. He's not only our co-host, but he's also our tireless producer. He does all the plannings and the bookings before the show. So thank you for all the support over the years because we really couldn't do it without him. Of course, thank you to our editor they're going to make us look good after the fact. Cut all of my mistakes out. Thank you very much. And of course, thank you to our TD for today, Mr. Amp Pruitt. He is the talented Mr. Amp Pruitt. He does a lot of shows, a lot of interviews, lots of fun stuff. Any interesting stuff go for you uh, this week on Twit? Thank you, Mr. Lou. Well, this week, uh, been working on some writing. Yeah, writing. Because twit.tv, we do have blogs. So... Uh, if you go to our website, twit.tv, and scroll down, you see the latest posts there on the page, some from me, some from our other co-hosts. Um, every now and then, we well, use, use a little bit of AI, but, you know, it all works. So, yeah, go check it out. You know, I actually wrote about, you know, some of the stuff that I was yelling regarding uh, Adobe Max and AI and, and 
the stuff that we just talked about here in the show. So, yeah, go check it out. Twitch.tv right there on the home page. Thank you, Ant. Well, until next time, I'm Louis Moresca just reminding you, if you want to know what's going on in the Enterprise, just keep quiet. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here. In case you hadn't heard, Home Theater Geeks is back. Each week, I bring you the latest audio-video news, tips and tricks to get the most out of your AV system, product reviews, and more. You can enjoy Home Theater Geeks only if you're a member of Club Twip, which costs 7 bucks a month. Or you can subscribe to Home Theater Geeks by itself for only $2.99 a month. I hope you'll join me for a weekly dose of home theater geekitude. All you want is to meet your security and compliance requirements, but your business technology keeps changing. Cyber threats emerge every day. More regulations apply to you now than ever before, and your IT resources remain limited. The Center for Internet Security can help. At CIS, we work to create a safer world for people, businesses, and governments through collaboration and innovation. Using a community-driven consensus process, we work with IT professionals and volunteers around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources save you time, money, and effort wherever you are on your cybersecurity journey. We also work with U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations to share information with one another so they're stronger together. Join us today in creating confidence in the connected world. Visit cisecurity.org to play your part.